0: Some time ago, my wife and I were traveling, and we happened to be visiting a church in the city that we were at. Uh, this church that we attended was a you know just a typical evangelical church, and the worship service I'm sure would be familiar to many of us. Uh, when the service ended, uh, we were getting ready to leave, but we're told to stay, you know, remain in our seats and not go yet. And then all the ushers began handing out uh, questionnaires to all the attendees. You know, it's quite a long survey, you know, quite quite a detailed, comprehensive survey. And the, the point of these questionnaires basically was to ask people, both Christians, non-Christians, basically anyone who attended the service, the, the, the aim of this questionnaire was to ask people what they wanted. For example, you know, what ministries and programs do you want? Uh, what kind of songs or sermons you prefer to hear? At what time is a good time to meet? Where is a good place to meet? So it was a church that was renting a space in a hall. Uh, you know, what kind of church-going experience do you want? So it's quite a comprehensive, detailed survey. It took us quite a while, actually, to fill out all the questions. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with doing a survey, but as I was filling out the questions, I, I just couldn't help wondering, is church just about giving people what they want? Is this how, is this the best way to build a healthy church? You know, just do a survey, collect all, the, collect all the responses and give people what they want. Is this the best way to build a healthy church? Well, what sort of church do we want? A church with good childcare, a church with an exciting youth ministry. I have a teenager, so I appreciate the exciting youth ministry. A church with intimate small groups. A church with a variety of programs and ministries and activities that cater to a broad swathe of different people in different demographics? A church with music that we know and like? what, What kind of church do we want? And what if our wants and our preferences pull us in pretty different directions? I think churches can so easily splinter into a number of special interest groups. You know, you have youth groups versus senior ministry, you have traditional churches versus contemporary churches, my group versus your group. You know, at the end of the day, do I just want a church that suits me, that meets my needs? Now, how might we be selfish and self-centred in our thinking about the church? In his book, Life Together, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book about Christian community, he sounds this warning, and I quote, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. The person who loves their dream of community, whatever, whatever that dream may look like, will destroy community. You know, we, we, may, we can like our idea about the church more than we love the church. If we make the church all about what you or I want, then I fear that we might end up tearing the church apart. So our focus should not be on the church that we want, but on the church that Jesus wants. And we'll close the year and begin 2024 with a brief three sermon series entitled Ecclesia, which is just Greek for church, The Church Jesus Wants. Now it may surprise us that Jesus mentions the church uh, only three times. And those three times appear in the Gospels, and specifically all of them appear in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, once in Matthew 16, which is the text that we'll look at today, twice in oh sorry, yeah, sorry, twice in Matthew 18, which is the text that we'll look at next week. And Jesus alludes to the church in Matthew 28. So these are the texts that we'll be looking at in our three sermon series, Matthew 16, Matthew 18 and Matthew 28. You know, the fact that Jesus mentions the church so few times, I don't think it means that he thinks that the church is somehow unimportant but I, I think it's probably because Jesus understands His disciples cannot take in all that He has to say about the church at this point. So He's very wisely as a good teacher or like a good parent would. You know, you know how much your kids can take, so you, you tell them a bit of truth now and again. Right? And Jesus wisely does that for His disciples. He tells them what they need to know at this point, and then the rest of the New Testament will fill in the rest of what Jesus wants us to know about the church. But, but here, in these three mentions of the church, we, we have in very brief summary some key truths about the people of God. And, and the fact that Jesus mentions the church so few times should make us listen even more closely to the times when he does speak about the church. So let me begin our time together by reading from our text this morning, Matthew 16 reading from verse 13 to verse 19, and we are on page 771 of our Pew Bibles. So feel free to use the Pew Bibles and take it home with you if you don't have your own physical copy of the Bible to read. So let me begin. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Sorry, I read the extra verse, but we're going to stop at verse 19. The big idea of these verses really is a simple one. Jesus is the Christ. Who builds his church on the true gospel. So so that's the big idea of these verses. And, And we'll think about this big idea in four points, which is our sermon outline for this morning the church's builder, the church's foundation, the church's authority, and the church's victory. So let's begin. Number one the church's builder. If you look at verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. So very clearly, he is the one who builds the church. Ah, but who is Jesus? Right? His identity is, is really the main focus of our passage. And in these verses in Matthew's Gospel, marks a key turning point in the Gospel. If you've been reading the, the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, you realise that Jesus has spent a lot of his time in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. Jesus is about to wrap up his ministry in Galilee. So this, this statement about who he is comes at really the tail end of his ministry in Galilee. And soon, Jesus will head southwards and he'll go towards Jerusalem. And of course, we know the ending of the story. He will be crucified there. So he's really heading towards his death in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And so it's no surprise if you read the context around this passage, you find that Jesus is facing growing opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were the religious teachers and leaders of the day. Well, they refused to believe Jesus. Therefore, in the passage immediately before ours, he warns his disciples to beware the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Basically, don't listen to falsehoods about who I am. So the spotlight here in these verses is on Jesus' identity. When Jesus enters the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, Caesarea Philippi was an interesting place. It was largely non-Jewish. Uh, it was mainly a Gentile city, and, and the name was quite significant, you know, Caesarea Philippi. It was named in honour of Caesar, the Roman emperor. Well, I I think the location of Jesus' question is no coincidence. It shows that Jesus' identity matters not only for the Jews, it's not just a Jewish question, but it matters for us, Gentiles. And it also shows us that Jesus is not just a Jewish king, but he is the king of the nations, of the Gentiles. Jesus alludes to Daniel chapter 7 in his question, who do people say the son of man is? Jesus likes using that self-reference for for himself, son of man. It's, It's an allusion to Daniel 7 that mentions how one, like a son of man, receives from God an everlasting kingdom, that all peoples, all nations should serve him. So this is a very pointed question asked in a pretty significant place. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Is Jesus our King? Is Jesus your King? What are the people saying about Jesus? Or well, the general consensus seems to be that He is one of the prophets. You know, something Elijah, because of the Old Testament prophecy in Malachi, that Elijah would come, before the day of the Lord to prepare the way. Others think that he's Jeremiah because Jesus' ministry seems to be so associated with the preaching of judgment and and suffering. He was rejected, so so he likened him to Jeremiah. Some, like Herod, think that Jesus is John the Baptist, come back from the grave to haunt him. So there are many different ideas about Jesus, and even today, many different ideas about Jesus still abound. If you ask your people around you, they may say Jesus is merely a good moral teacher, someone who taught us a good way to live, to be a good person. You know, Some people say all religions are the same and Jesus is one of many who teaches us what a good life looks like, what morality looks like. You know, is he just a good moral teacher? Some think that he's just a human prophet, you know, another prophet in a long line of prophets, maybe not the ultimate one, Friends, do we have the full picture about Jesus? How do we get the full picture about who Jesus is? Well, don't listen to popular opinion, but the best way to do that is to read the Bible. Read the Bible to get to know who Jesus is. Where in the Bible should you read? The the Gospels are a great place to start. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of the best things you can resolve to do this coming year is to read through the Gospels. Uh, hopefully at least once. Right? Just spend this year reading through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and keep asking yourself the question, what, 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 is, what does this tell me about who Jesus is? Right? Who is Jesus? What, what, what am I learning about who Jesus is as I read the Gospels? So that's a great thing to do. Uh, maybe beginning this afternoon, read, read through the Gospels. If you have questions about who Jesus is, you know, come, come find me after the service. I would love to, tell you, I'd love to talk to you more more. If you have questions about who Jesus is, talk to one of the elders, talk to the friend who brought you this morning. That's a great question to ask. Friends, I pray that we will not let the noise of conflicting ideas about Jesus distract us from the one question that matters most. Now, apart from the the question about what other people think, I think the question that matters most is, what do I think about who Jesus is? And that's exactly the question that Jesus asks the disciples in verse 15. Who do you say that I am? And the you here is plural. So Jesus is directing the question to all his disciples. And it, it doesn't come true as clearly in the English translation, but the you is emphasized. L- literally, Jesus is saying, you, what do you, who do you say that I am? So regardless of what popular opinion may be, I think it's vital that we consider, what do I think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? You know, it's easy sometimes to hide behind popular opinion, but Jesus wants us to confront this question ourselves. He wants each of us to come to grips with this vital question, who do I say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Speaking on behalf of the disciples, Peter replies. He says in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Let's spend a bit of time to unpack this. First, Jesus is the Christ, which means he is the Messiah. Christ is Messiah, same, same thing. He's the Messiah whom God promised in the Old Testament to send to save his people. The Christ comes from the line of Abraham and David. You know, As we've heard over our sermons in Christmas, uh, Jesus is this promised king. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy showing how Jesus is both son of Abraham and son of David. You know, Indeed, if you read the whole gospel of Matthew, it revolves around the identity of Jesus, who he is. He's the Christ, the, the promised king the one who rules from David's throne. But, but, Jesus, but, but let's, let's think about the next part of Peter's reply. More than that, Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that He has a special relationship with the Heavenly Father. Jesus has been chosen, set apart to do God's will. And Jesus is not just one Son of many. He, he's the one and only Son, equal with the Father, fully God and also fully man. And you notice Peter's reply, Jesus is the son of the living God. Although he will suffer and die, Jesus will be raised from the grave by the living God. It's the God who ever lives. He's not God of the dead, but God of the living. So this is who Jesus is. And it's this Jesus, not the Jesus of our imagination, but this Jesus is the king we need, for he has come to save us from our sins. As Matthew tells us in chapter 1 verse 21, we have all sinned against this king. We've all turned away from God. And instead of worshipping our creator, the one who made us, we have selfishly turned aside and chosen to live for ourselves rather than for Him. We've chosen to live our life, our way, not God's way. And the Bible defines this as sin. So sin is not just breaking a rule in an abstract way, doing bad things, or falling short of our own standards. Sin fundamentally is a turning away from our Creator and not worshipping Him as we should. And, and you can imagine, if, if we've turned away from the one who made us, it is right that He judges us for how we have fallen short of His glory. Sin deserves God's judgment. And we face the penalty for sin, which is death, not just physical death, but spiritual death and eternal separation from God in hell. But God, in His grace and mercy, has sent His Son to save guilty sinners, undeserving sinners like us. Jesus died to bear God's judgment in the place of sinners so that we can be forgiven and brought back to God if we would only repent and believe in Him. And that's not all. He was resurrected, raised from the dead in victory over sin and death that we might receive eternal life in His name. This is the Jesus we need to know. Do we personally know this Jesus? I speak especially to the younger people who've grown up in Christian homes. Your parents maybe bring you to church regularly. But do you personally know this Jesus? Do you take Him to be your Lord and your Savior? How are we trusting in this Jesus alone to save us? True blessing can only be found in Christ. Notice how Jesus answers Peter in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now, I I think there's a connection here between verse 17, blessed are you, and the Beatitudes. If you think back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus speaks the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, and, and so on. So I I think what Jesus is saying here is something like the culmination of the Beatitudes. The poor in spirit receive rich spiritual blessings in Christ. Jesus comforts those who mourn. He exalts the meek. He satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are you if you know this Jesus. If you're looking for blessing in this coming year, you won't find it anywhere else except through trusting in Jesus. And, And Peter did not figure out the truth about Jesus on his own. Jesus says to him, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Second half of verse 17. It underscores the fact that salvation is by God's grace alone so that no one may boast. We cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws us. Apart from God, we are all spiritually dead. Apart from God, we are all spiritually blind. No one, not a single one, comes to Jesus on his own or her own. It is God who graciously takes the initiative. He gives us the gift of faith. So if you're struggling with that, right? if you're wondering I don't have faith. How do I trust in Jesus? Well, ask God. God, give me the gift of faith. God, give, give me grace that I may know Jesus and trust Him. God, I believe, is pleased to answer those prayers. Pray and ask Him. He, he is the one who gives us faith. He's the one who opens blind eyes. He's the one who makes us spiritually alive. and He makes us alive in Christ. Now, oh, Friends, believing the gospel kills our pride. None of us can take credit for our salvation. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, I believed. Good on me. No, none of us can do that. You know, as a church, you know, God forbid that we should ever be proud and think that we are entitled somehow because we are somehow better than those outside. God forbid. Flesh and blood has not revealed these things to us except the Father who is in heaven. Praise God for how He has graciously opened our eyes to behold the beauty and glory of the Son. We would never have come to Him, left to ourselves. It's the best way to kill our pride, best way to be humble, is to remember how God has saved us by His grace in Christ. This is the reason why Jesus is the church's builder, because no one else is able to do these things. He alone is the source of life, God saves and gathers us, not through our programs or activities, but through His Son. The church exists only by the grace of God. You know, this should move our hearts to praise and thank Him for how He has created the church. You know, therefore, we must decrease. Jesus must increase. It's good to remind ourselves of that, right? that this church is not my church. It is not your church, it is Jesus' church. It doesn't belong to us in that sense. He's brought us into the body to belong to His church. So be encouraged that Jesus will build His church. This tells us that we don't have to rely on man-made methods or clever strategies to build God's church. God calls us to be faithful Faithful to what His Word tells us that we should do about, what we, about the church. Faithful to the ordinary means of grace that He has entrusted to us to serve Him. We can proclaim His Word, we can pray, and we can be patient and just trust in Jesus to build His church. That's it. It, it sounds almost simplistic, But that's precisely how God means for us to work. Why? So that all the glory goes to Him and not to us. We plant and water, but only God gives the growth. Trust Jesus to build His church. Number two, the church's foundation. You notice in verse 18, Jesus affirms Peter's profession of faith. He says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. So that there's a play on words going on here. You know, in Greek, Peter means rock. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you are the rock and on this rock, I will build my church. You know, I enjoy puns. So puns are Christ-like. It's good to know that. So be like Jesus, use puns. You now, what, what does it mean that Peter is the church's foundation? You know, Roman Catholic, you know, I think sometimes when we come to this verse, Protestants have been somewhat uncomfortable with a verse like this. Oh, it it sounds Roman Catholic, doesn't it? And and indeed, Roman Catholics take this verse to mean that Peter is given special authority. You know, and and in church history, Peter is known to have led the church in Rome at some point, And, and therefore, the Roman Catholics have taken this verse and they take it to mean that Peter as the first bishop of Rome and, and all the subsequent bishops of Rome that follow Peter are said to have special authority to rule as popes over the church. So that's how Roman Catholics have understood this verse. You are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. But I, I think on a, a, a fair reading of the text, I, I think we can reject this Roman Catholic interpretation Simply because there's nothing in the text that supports the idea of a pope, and nothing in the text that supports the idea of papal succession. So I think it's quite a stretch to take this text and to say that, that this is a proof text for why we have papal succession. But this is what it means. I think when, when Jesus says Peter is the church's foundation, he, he means it in this sense Peter has made a right confession of the truth about Jesus. And you notice how Peter is speaking as a representative of the disciples, of the apostles, right? Remember, Jesus' original question is plural. Who do you, plural, say that I am? Peter says, replies on behalf of the apostles, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter has made a right confession on behalf of the apostles about who Jesus is. And as one of the apostles, who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, Peter's job is to proclaim this true gospel that he has just professed. Jesus will build his church on Peter and the other apostles as they rightly confess, preach, who Jesus is. That's how Jesus is going to build his church, on the right preaching of the apostolic gospel. Therefore, Paul says later on in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church's foundation is the apostles and the gospel that they confess, as, as what Peter has just done. And this apostolic confession of the gospel, this apostolic gospel is the bedrock On which the church is built. So, friends, there's nothing inherent in Peter himself that entitles him to some special position in the church. In in fact, if you if you read on just a few verses after this, Peter is rebuked for his wrong understanding of Jesus' death. So Peter's standing is contingent on having a right confession of Jesus. Once he gets that wrong, then he has no standing. Jesus' promise to build His church is not a blank check given to people, giving them license to do whatever they want. The church is founded on true disciples of Christ confessing the true gospel. That's the foundation of the church. Now, Grace Baptist Church, our continuity as a church, is not a given. I think it's sobering to think about that. Our continuity as a church it's not entitled, it's not our our right that we continue forever as a church. The continuity of our witness as a church depends on us remaining faithful to this true gospel. If we depart from the gospel, then we shouldn't continue. If we forsake the gospel, then Jesus has every right to remove our witness as he does, as he warns right, in, in the letter to the churches in Revelation, I will take away your lampstand. If we reject the gospel, if we live in a way that is so inconsistent with the gospel, Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. That, that's what it means to understand that the church's foundation is this apostolic gospel. May we never depart from this foundation The church is a people created by the gospel. And Jesus saves sinners and gathers them to be his disciples who confess the same gospel that Peter has just confessed. And this is why we have a membership class called Church Matters. This is why we conduct membership interviews or elder chats, as we call them, for those joining the church. Now, why do we do these things? It's because the elders want to hear what you believe about Jesus The elders want to hear how God has led you to believe the gospel. And we want to hear how you are living as a follower of Jesus. So when we receive a person into membership, we are affirming their profession of faith. We're saying to them, yes, you are a true confessor of this gospel because we've heard from you, we've seen how you live, we affirm that profession of faith that they believe and live according to the true gospel. So to be a church member simply means to have a credible profession of faith. A credible profession of faith. So it matters what we believe. It matters how we live. The church is central to God's plan. The church is how this true gospel is confessed. The church is how confessors of the true gospel are identified. How do we know who Christians are? If you, look out, if you look out in the sea of people, how do we know who Christians are? Well, generally, sometimes you ask people, do you go to church? Right? That, that's oftentimes the question that we ask someone. Do you go to church? But why? It's because we, we somehow we understand that the, the church is the, sort of marked out as the community of disciples. The church is the place where confessors of the true gospel are identified. So we need the church. We need the church to witness to Christ in the world. The church is a community of God's people. It's a gospel community comprising followers of Jesus who believe and confess this apostolic gospel. And we live this out by being baptized into the body of Christ, by gathering regularly to hear and obey God's Word, by sharing the Lord's Supper together, in regular fellowship. You know, all these things are the basic building blocks for how we are to be a church. So if you're kind of checking us out as a church, you know, welcome. You know, I, I pray that you will settle at a faithful gospel-preaching church. Whether GBC or if the Lord leads you somewhere else, you know, settle at a faithful Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching church. It's good for your soul. You know, Make church a priority in this coming year. Members of this local church, members of GBC, we have a job to do. We are to grow and guard the gospel together. What does this look like in practice? We grow the gospel by making disciples together. We pray for, we support the work of evangelism and missions. We disciple one another to grow in Christ. we, We all have a role to play in guarding the gospel not just the leaders of the church, but all of us. You know, we guard the gospel when we deepen our understanding of God's truth. You know, the Bible studies that you do, the Bible reading that you do, you, know, you, you, help, you are equipping yourself to know God's truth so that you can properly guard it and steward it. Knowing the gospel well enables us to discern true from false, right from wrong. We guard the gospel by practicing church discipline calling one another to repent when we disobey God and our lives are inconsistent with the gospel. You know, our lives say something about the gospel. And if a brother or sister is living in a way, or if I'm living in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel, uh, you in faithfulness to the gospel should tell me that my life lines up better with a faithful witness for the gospel. We guard the gospel by appointing godly leaders, faithful elders, faithful deacons whose lives and teaching are faithful to God's truth. That's the church's foundation. Let's think about number three, the church's authority. Jesus builds his church on the foundation of the true apostolic gospel. And next, Jesus entrusts his authority to Peter who represents the disciples. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what are keys? Well, keys are used to lock uh, or unlock doors to either prevent or allow entry. Uh, other parts of Scripture tell us a bit more about keys. You know, in, in Revelation 3, Jesus is described as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. In, in another example, in Luke 11, Jesus rebukes those who were supposedly experts in religious law. He says to the lawyers, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So hence, the keys of the kingdom refer to the authority of, that Jesus gives Peter to either allow or disallow entry into God's kingdom. Those are the keys of the kingdom. Peter, as we said earlier, is a true confessor, confessor, who has made a right confession of the true gospel. And Peter is to exercise this authority, how? By faithfully confessing the gospel, by faithfully proclaiming the gospel; those who repent and believe in this gospel that Peter confesses can enter God's kingdom. Those who reject it cannot. That's how Peter is meant to use the keys of the kingdom. And immediately, if you read on in the Bible story in Acts two, this is exactly what Peter does, right? Acts two, Pentecost, Peter gets up and preaches. And during you know, towards the end of his sermon, people say to him. What must we do? What should we do? And and Peter, speaking with the authority given to him by Christ, he says, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. On what authority does he do that? Because he's been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. Because Jesus has given him, as an apostle, that authority to preach Christ. And to tell someone, if you believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven. That's authority from God. It's not, it's not, doesn't, it doesn't just come up in our imagination. So those who believe in Acts 2, what, what happens? They are baptized and they were added to the church. You know, binding and loosing was a figure of speech used by rabbis to describe what Scripture permits or forbids. To bind could mean to restrict To loose could mean to unrestrict. So here, Jesus applies the language of binding and loosing to the use of the keys of the kingdom. The keys are used through the right preaching of the gospel as well as baptising and and admitting into church membership those who believe the gospel. There's another place in Scripture that makes this even clearer. John 20 verse 23 Uh, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on his disciples and then he says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. I think that in John 20, Jesus is saying the same thing that he's saying to Peter here in Matthew 16, on the use of the keys. Now, Now, all this does not mean that Peter and the apostles have absolute authority to grant salvation. Or that their binding and losing somehow forces heaven's hand. You know, if you look at some of some of your Bibles have a margin note that provides a a more literal translation to this verse, to verse 19. It says, Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That's the the more literal translation. Whatever you lose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's an interesting tense, right? Whatever Peter binds, whatever Peter loses, it, it reflects what is already true in heaven. Hence the perfect tense. The apostles' ministry on earth is meant to reflect what is already true in heaven. So Peter is to bind and loose, not according to his own will, but according to God's will which God has revealed in His Word. It, it, I, I liken it to having like, like power of attorney. I mean, do we, are we familiar with this concept of power, power of attorney? So basically a power of attorney is someone who's entrusted with authority to do something on behalf of someone else. Right? That, that's what it means to have power of attorney. So suppose you entrust me with powers of attorney in a legal matter. You've given me authority, but insofar as to act on your behalf, If I'm a good steward of this authority, I will do your will, not my own. If I'm a faithful power of attorney, I will do what you tell me to do on your behalf. My actions should reflect your will, not my own. I think that's exactly what's happening here. As Jesus entrusts Peter with that authority of the keys, he's meant to do God's will, not his own. Peter and the apostles have no authority to change anyone's eternal destiny not no ultimate authority. Rather, when they faithfully proclaim the gospel and people respond with repentance and faith, Peter and the apostles are simply recognizing and affirming those whom Jesus has already saved. Peter, as a faithful confessor of the true gospel, is given authority to declare who are other faithful confessors of the true gospel. But what do we do now, now that the apostles are no longer with us? Right? Where does that authority reside? Who exercises the authority of the keys now? You know, we can't just give Peter a call and ask him, because he's not physically here with us. Well, it, it doesn't say in our text specifically, but if you look at Matthew 18, which we will hear from next week, the same language of binding and loosing is applied to the church concerning church discipline. So if you just flip a page over to Matthew 18, look at verses 17 and 18. You know, tell it to the church. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I think it's remarkable that Jesus should entrust such authority to redeem sinners like us, flawed, imperfect, weak, frail, but he entrusts us with authority. He's entrusted the church with the authority to affirm what is a true gospel confession and who is a true gospel confessor. In practice, this means authority to admit or remove from church membership. The church admits into membership those who believe the gospel and are baptised upon their profession of faith in Christ. The church disciplines those who persist in unrepentant sin, whose lives are inconsistent with their profession of faith. And who in the church is entrusted with such authority? Is it just the leaders, the elders, the directors, the deacons, Well, in in Matthew 18, Jesus says, tell it to the church, not the elders, not the deacons, not a special subgroup or disciplinary committee, but tell it to the church, the members of the church, the gathered assembly of God's people. Jesus entrusts to us as members of this local church the power of the keys, the authority to affirm what is the true gospel, And who is a believer of the true gospel? What does this look like in practice? For example, we affirm the true gospel by holding fast to biblical truth, by rejecting false teaching. We affirm that someone is a gospel believer when we baptize them and admit them into church membership. we, We use the keys at our members' meeting that's coming up, where we affirm the profession of faith of those who plan to join us through baptism and transfer, that, that's a use of the keys of the kingdom. So come for the members' meeting. It's a key part of our responsibility as fellow members of this local church. Using the keys is how we obey the Great Commission and make disciples together. So where do the elders fit in? Right? Where do the elders fit into all this? Well, we as elders are responsible for faithfully preaching teaching and leading the members of GBC to be good stewards of the keys according to God's Word. That's our role as leaders of this church. We we are meant to steward the teaching of God's Word so that we all together, as God's people, use the keys well according to God's Word, not according to to our own desires. So fellow members of GBC, God... Jesus has entrusted authority to us, and we all have a job to do. If you're a member of this church, you have a job to do in exercising the keys of the kingdom. And we are all responsible for the health of this local church to ensure that GBC continues to faithfully proclaim and display the gospel in our life together. How do we get to work? Well, gather regularly for corporate worship. Attend members' meetings where we exercise the power of the keys. Grow in God's word yourself to be better at guarding the gospel, to better know the gospel. Be an ambassador for Christ. Tell others about Jesus. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel because we bear his name. Get to know one another. Our GBC members will be emailing you after after the service, testimonies of those whom we hope to receive into membership at our upcoming members meeting. Read read these testimonies. If you can, get to know these individuals. Hear about how God has led them to Christ. Try to get to know as many of them as you can. Try to get to know as many of one another as we can. Realistically, in a church our size, it's, it's not, it may be impossible to get to know everyone equally well, but if we commit to knowing others and being known by others, you'd be surprised. We can actually get to know both directly and indirectly many, many people. In fact, I would say much of the church if we are intentional about plugging into the life of the body. Why do we do that? Because we use the keys together as fellow members of this local church. Pray for other members. Use the church membership directory and just pray for people name by name. You can get a copy of the directory from the church office. Attend the monthly prayer meetings. Help another church member to grow in the gospel. Meet with them. Read the Bible to pray. Encourage one another. If you are a Christian, I encourage you to become a member of the local church, to join with God's plan to make disciples of the nations. Now, If, if you read these three texts, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and the Great Commission in Matthew 28, you realise that you can't do the Great Commission apart from the local church. So if if you're not in a local church, then then how are you obeying the Great Commission? That's how these texts are functioning in the Gospel of Matthew. Joining the church is good for your assurance of faith. You you profess to be a Christian, how do you know? How do you know that you're not self-deceived? Well, you have other brothers and sisters around you who affirm your profession of faith, who so say, yes, we see your life, we hear your confession of Jesus, and yes, you are a faithful follower of Christ. That's good for our assurance of faith. Finally, the church's victory. So let's resolve, beginning in 2024, to give ourselves to serve Christ and His people through the local church. Why? Because the church belongs to Jesus, who will build His church on the foundation of the true apostolic gospel. Because Jesus has entrusted his church with the authority to make disciples, and because Jesus has promised the church victory. It says in verse 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or the church. Beloved, what a privilege it is to be invited into this work with Jesus to build something that will last forever. We we give ourselves to so many other things in our lives, but those other things will not last. Shouldn't we give ourselves to build that which will last forever? The gates of hell or Hades refers to death. Because Jesus is the Son of the living God, those who believe in the Son will never die, will have eternal life. Since Jesus has been resurrected in glory, the church shall also be raised with Him. This is our hope. and That's why we labour, knowing that our labour is not in vain if we are building God's church with Him. Because Jesus has defeated sin and death, the church will ultimately win. But for now, we are painfully aware of the church's sins and shortcomings, flaws and failures, On this side of eternity, there is no perfect church. But Jesus has committed to love His bride with all her imperfections, that He might make her beautiful and glorious. Now, shouldn't we also be committed to love His bride with all her imperfections? Therefore, let's walk by faith and hope in Jesus' plans for His church. May God grow us to become more and more the church Jesus wants. Ephesians 5 says Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Amen.